following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Last week, uh, I resumed our series in the book of Jeremiah and by looking at chapter 18. And today we're going to kind of march onward by looking at chapter 20 and the title of the message is The Severe Love of God. And before we uh, get into it, can we just bow in a word of prayer? God, open up our hearts to you. Open our hearts to your word of truth. Open our hearts to the ministry of your Holy Spirit to receive what you want to give to us in this morning. Lord, we confess that we are so apt to make an image of you in our own liking that we can accept. But we pray that you would Shatter that image and help us to see who you really are by the word that you give to us. So we offer ourselves to that work that you need to do within our hearts as we look at this book of Jeremiah. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we started last week uh, in the resumption of the book by looking at this story of Jeremiah being called by God to go to the local potter's house. And there at the potter's house, Jeremiah finds the potter already working very diligently at the wheel with this lump of clay, trying to make a vessel, a pottery out of it. But um, what Jeremiah witnesses is that this this clay, for whatever reason, and I'm not a potter, so I'm not even going to venture a guess. I don't know if it was too dry or too wet or lumps in it. I don't know. But the clay isn't cooperating with the potter. It's fighting him. And so he's uh, not able to make what he originally wants to make out of this uh, vessel. And as a result of that, he basically starts all over. And he takes that piece of clay and he reshapes it into something totally different. And one of the things I said in last week's message was that this visit to the potter's house illustrates this mystery of how At one level, we say that God is in complete control of everything. And yet, what that story suggests is that there are choices that we can make in our lives that affect the ultimate plans that God has for us. That whether it's our obedience or disobedience, um, that can cause us to veer from what God originally intended for us. And yet, what that story also shows is that even in those seasons of disobedience, or even when we're running away from God in our rebellion, that because God is so powerful and in control, it may not quite take us to the path that he originally intended for us, but he can reshape our lives into something beautiful, something, nevertheless, that is for his glory. Um, another thing that I think that story shows of the potter's house is that I think in our own sinfulness, it's very easy to cast God as the one that's the problem in the relationship, you know? God is the one that's so stubborn. He's the one that's so unyielding. He's the one that's so hard to deal with. And here I am trying to work with God, trying to do what he tells me to do with his long list of commands and trying to obey him. And it's just so hard because God is so hard. But the way that God would frame it is, 
you know, I am the one with infinite patience and loving kindness, and I am the one that is flexible and working with you. And the truth is what the Bible lays out for us through much of its witnesses, we are the stubborn ones. We are the hard-hearted ones. We are the ones that make unreasonable demands on God and fold our arms and say, well, what are you going to do about that, God? He gives a really different perspective on our relationship with him, that we are the stubborn, impatient ones. One of the other things I pointed out that I think is important to, again, emphasize in that story of the potter's house is at the same time, we have to be careful not to stretch the illustration too far. It's when we see this picture of the potter remolding the clay to make something new out of it, there could be this sort of assumption that says what the Bible is basically telling you is that you can you know, indefinitely abuse this grace of God and just keep pushing him aside and keep pushing him aside and don't worry about it because he's just going to keep coming back at you and coming back at you. But when we look at Scripture, we see the strong message that there are certain windows of opportunity that God opens in our life to respond to what he's doing. And that there are consequences when we push him away and shun the doors that he opens on our behalf. And so, in fact, in the very next chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 19, God commands Jeremiah to get the people of Judah and gather them together in this place called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, where the Israelites used to actually sacrifice their children, as horrible as that sounds. And he gathered the priesthood, and he gathered the other prophets, and he basically had Jeremiah tell them, you have refused all of my warnings to you, and now the time of judgment has come. And so he has Jeremiah take this piece of pottery and throw it on the ground, shattering it as a visual illustration that judgment is coming on the house of Judah. And that chapter closes with these words. Jeremiah 19, verse 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon the city and upon all its towns all the disaster that I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. These are heavy words. The message is, judgment is already at your gates. It's too late now. The enemy is coming. Jerusalem is going to fall. I've titled this message, The Severe Love of God. Um, and I want to explain that a little bit. Because we use the adjective severe to describe things that are very great, very intense. So we talk about a severe weather storm that's approaching Chicagoland. Or we talk about a severe wound that needs surgery, you know. And so as you can see, we almost always use this word severe in a negative sense. And you probably have never heard it associated with the word love. But the book of Jeremiah paints what I believe is a picture of God's severe love. A love that is so intense, so passionate, so all-consuming that the truth is, at times it's very hard to understand. And it can be actually very jarring and difficult to accept. You can say that everything that happens in the book of Jeremiah is an expression of God's love for his people. But when you read the book of Jeremiah, I don't think anyone is going to describe it as a love story. you know. And yet it's exactly that. It is God in his white-hot pursuit of his people in love 
that causes him to do the things that he does to his people and even to his prophet. And so the way I want to break down the message this morning is to first see the reaction of God's people to that severe love that he shows. And then secondly, in the second part of the message, I want to see how Jeremiah, the prophet himself, reacted when faced with the severe love of God. Well, how did the people react when they heard the message of chapter 19 that judgment was at their door and that, you know, seeing this broken vessel shattered into pieces in front of them was a message, this is Israel, this is Judah. Well, if you look in chapter 20, verse 1 to 2, this is how the people reacted. Now, Pasher, the priest, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pasher beat Jeremiah, the prophet, and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. Pasher was in charge of the temple. He was the temple administrator who basically ran everything when it came to temple worship. And when he heard these words of Jeremiah, he was so deeply angered and offended that he had him basically beaten and then we're told he was thrown into stocks. Now, when we think of stocks, we typically think of the kind of like a pillory that was used in the colonial days, you know. And the truth is, um, it probably, this picture probably doesn't do justice to what was done to Jeremiah. Because those kind of colonial era pillories were designed more for public humiliation. Okay? They were just there so that people could make fun of you and ridicule you in the public square. But this word that is found in verse 2, Jeremiah was thrown into the stocks, it comes from the Hebrew word that means to twist. To twist. And so very likely what Jeremiah was inflicted was with some kind of a contraption that twisted his body in some incredibly painful way where he was forced to stay for a full day. In other words, this was a torture device. And there are actually places around the world that still inflict this form of punishment. It's, you can kind of call it village justice. I, I've seen this, uh, videos of this in Africa in other places. Don't Google it because it's actually you can find some videos online <laughs> of this stuff being done to people, and it's gruesome what you do to him. And so they basically beat and tortured Jeremiah because of the words that he shared. You got to understand that Jeremiah did not minister in a vacuum. He was called to be a prophet at a time when all of the other leaders were saying the exact opposite of what God told him to say. And so instead of warning the people that God's judgment was about to fall on Jerusalem if they didn't repent, men like Pasher gave assurance to the people, false assurance, that they were doing fine and that God was happy with them and that there was no need for a message like Jeremiah, that Jeremiah was the outlier. He was the kook. He was the dissenter. You see, when Jeremiah was called by God to be a prophet, he walked right into a national conspiracy between the people and their leaders, which could basically be summed up like this. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. okay. We're all good. Everything is fine here. And so throughout the book of Jeremiah, God warns the people through the prophecies of Jeremiah about their leaders that they're following. 
Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30 to 31 says, A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority, and my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end or when the end comes? Jeremiah 8, verse 11, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Basically, God is saying, you have a major artery gushing and your priests have put a band-aid over it. Jeremiah 14, verse 13 to 15. But I said, Allah, sovereign Lord, the prophet keeps telling them, you will not see the sword or suffer famine. Indeed, I will give your lasting peace in this place. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own mind. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name. I did not send them, yet they are saying, no sword or famine will touch this land. Those same prophets will perish by sword and famine. And then finally, in Jeremiah 23, verse 16 to 18 and 21 to 22, it says this, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says, you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or to hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. Do you hear what God is saying? If only the leaders really spoke What was on my heart? They could have helped the people to repent and turn back and be saved. But they lied to the people and gave them false assurances when they were so far from me, they said, you're okay with God. And because of what these leaders had done to you, they have led the entire nation astray and given you a false security that everything is going to be okay. And I think the truth is in our day, it's no different. We're living in times that are not all that different from the days of Jeremiah because the truth is this, is life is hard. (coughs) And the truth is we do go through a week in a broken world often feeling beat up all week. And who wouldn't want to go to a church where every week the service is the same? It is like one big serving of chicken soup for the soul, right? So that hopefully by the end of that hour and a half, you kind of leave feeling a little better about yourself and about your life and about God. But when we talk about the severity of God's love and the love that is displayed in this book of Jeremiah, it's it's really different. God says, I love you too much to leave you in your sin and to let you keep walking the way you're going. And I love you too much not to let there be consequences to the choices that you're making in your life. In other words, true love cares enough to speak truth to people, even if that truth may hurt. 
Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Look at how Jeremiah responds after his release from that uh, stocks. Verses 3 to 6 of Jeremiah 20. The next day when Pasha released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call your name Pasha, but terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon and shall strike them down with a sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, all its prized belongings, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah into the hands of their enemies, who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die, and there you shall be buried, you and all your friends, to whom you have prophesied falsely. You see, Pasher, Pasher in Hebrew means peace on every side. And what Jeremiah says is, I change your name from peace on every side to terror on every side. Because what Jeremiah was saying to Pasher was, in the false assurances you're giving to God's people, you're basically leading them down a path of terror and destruction. Pasher, you may be everyone's favorite preacher right now because you're telling them everything they want to hear. but they don't know that you're speaking words of comfort to them as you lead them right to the cliff's edge, right into destruction. Eugene Peterson says this, The task of a prophet is not to smooth things over, but to make things right. The function of religion is not to make people feel good, but to make them good. Love, yes, God loves us. But his love is passionate and seeks faithful, committed love in return. God does not want tame pets to fondle and feed. He wants mature, free people who will respond to him in authentic individuality. For that to happen, there must be honesty and truth. The self must be toppled from its pedestal. There must be pure hearts and clear intelligence, confession of sin and commitment in faith. And peace? Yes, God gives peace. But it is not a peace that gets along with everyone by avoiding the hint of anything unpleasant. It is not a peace achieved by refusing to talk about painful subjects or touch sore spots. It is a peace that is hard won by learning to pray. There is evil to combat, apathy to defeat, dullness to challenge, ambition to confront. What Jeremiah 20 is basically teaching us is there is a cheap imitation way of achieving peace in your life. And that is by following lies. But the real peace that God offers requires us to have the courage to face the truth about our lives and who we really are. And it's very clear that the people didn't like the message that Jeremiah brought to them. And so as we say in our day, they shot the messenger. Instead of courageously confronting the truth about themselves, 
They opted for a cheap peace rooted in lies that their leaders were more than willing to feed them so that they could go to sleep at night and feel good about themselves. I want to show you a brief video uh, that illustrates this struggle to speak truth out of love into our lives. And I, I know that I just hit the ground running in a pretty heavy message today. I, I was thinking about it going like, you know, I think Peter will be known as the pastor of joy and I'm going to be known as the pastor of suffering or something like that. So I don't know. He preached on joy for seven weeks and I felt like there was too much joy in the church. So I'm coming here to sort of undo all of that right now. Okay. But so we'll have a little moment of levity. This video only runs a couple minutes and let's just take a look at it and we'll go on. Listen, there is a time for non-judgmental, empathetic listening to sit in support silently with someone who is hurting and listen to what their pain is about. But I also, let's be honest here. There are times when we have to speak the truth in love and tell people what they don't want to hear. Sometimes we have to tell them that there's a nail sticking out of their head. You know. I was listening to this podcast the other day of this uh, nationally recognized uh, Christian leader, author of many books, and his ministry centers around discipleship. And uh, the interviewer started the program, I think, with what seemed to me like a little bit of like a gotcha question. But he asked this uh, Christian leader, uh, who are you learning from right now? And you could tell right away that this guy wasn't ready for this question. And he was a little caught off guard. And so he began to fumble for an answer. And so he began to say stuff like, well, I read a lot of books. I read lots of books. And, and then I learn from all kinds of people all the time from all over the world. <laughs> He's like talking like this. And then eventually he just gave up. And he started to go into this long monologue about the nature of his own ministry and totally dodge that question about who he's learning from right now. And as I was listening to that podcast, I wasn't sitting there smirking or gloating <laughs> at this guy's uh, sitting there squirming in his chair, uncomfortable by that question, because the truth is, I don't know if I would have handled that question much better than he did. Because here is what I'm saying. I, I realize that the older we get, the more hardened we become. And the more stubborn we become in our ways. And the truth is, the deeper we get into adulthood, the fewer teachers we really have in our lives. Isn't that true? I mean, if I were to throw that back at you and say, who are you really learning from right now? Whose feet are you sitting at and really learning about yourself and about God and about your life? Well, how would you answer that? Because the truth is, the older we get, the less teachable we become. Who are you learning from right now? Are you even in a learning posture in your life? Are you still learning new things anymore? Are you still growing? I've shared this in some circles here at ICC, but, you know, Betty and I, when we first got married, we went through some rough patches early on in our marriage, and we would get into these very heated arguments where we're basically screaming at each other and uh, yelling at each other and um, there was, I think it was about a year into that first year of marriage where this new dynamic took over where I would start getting into an argument with Betty and she would just shut down. 
and she wouldn't talk anymore. She just went into silent mode. And that would get me even angrier. And I'd say, what's your problem? Why aren't you answering me? Why aren't you talking back? And this is uh, what she said. She said, you know, what's the use? You're going to win the argument like you always do. (laughs) So I don't even want to argue with you. And then she said something that really shook me. Um, She was actually, by this point, like crying uh, pretty openly. And she said this to me. She said, just because you win every argument doesn't mean you're always right. (laughs) That's what she said to me. Just because you win every argument doesn't mean you're always right. And the truth was this. The first reaction to her saying that was, a duh. (laughs) By definition, if I win the argument, I am right. This is what's wrong with our marriage is you're so illogical, you know. It's like, you, you say things like that. That makes no sense. It really took a God moment for God to shine a light into my heart, for me to hear what my wife was trying to say to me, what I didn't want to acknowledge about myself. And what I had to acknowledge was I didn't win every argument because I was always right. I won every argument because I am a good debater, you know? I'm a really good debater. Because whenever we get into arguments, I can remember everything. I have this card catalog in my head, and I can give supporting evidence, and I can prosecute her like no, nobody can. And she feels overwhelmed, and she, cannot, she shuts down. She cannot say anything. And the truth is that I often bullied her because I thought I wanted to talk things out. But whenever we got into an argument, I realized she was coming into my territory. And I didn't want resolution. I didn't want reconciliation. I wanted to win. I wanted to prove to her how wrong she is. And little by little, I was killing her spirit by winning every argument. And the truth was, I never brought in things that (laughs) would weaken my argument, right? And the truth was, I was totally blind to many of the ways I was sinning against her. And so when she said that, I just stood there in silence and said, is that really me? Am I like that? Am I that husband? Do I really treat my wife like that? I bully her? I talk down to her? I belittle her? The older we get, the deeper we recede into the prison of our own wisdom. And the less willing we are to face the truth that God wants to shine in our lives. And I want to challenge you that all of us face this mountain that we have to climb. And this is much of the story of the entire book of Jeremiah. is God in his love calling out his people, the lives that they were living. And they, in their anger and their hard-heartedness, shouting back at God, that's not me, God. You've got it all wrong. The courage to face the honest truth about ourselves is not something that we can generate within ourselves by sheer willpower. This is a work that God has to do within us. That's why later on in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 33, God would say this through his prophet. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God is basically saying, I can give you the law, but you don't have the strength to obey it. And so this new covenant that I will make with you, I will not only give you my command, I will write it on your heart and give you the power to obey it. My power enabling you to live the life that I have called you to. And that is the covenant that Jesus made when he died on the cross for your sin and mine. It's not up to your ability to live the right life before God. It is our utter and total dependence on the power that God can give us to enable us to live the life that he has called us to live. Well, secondly, I want to look at how Jeremiah responded to his own encounter with the severity of God's love. Here's the thing is, unlike the Israelites, unlike the people of Judah, Jeremiah wasn't afraid to face the truth, no matter how difficult it might be to accept. But that's not to say he had an easy time with God's love either. He really struggled with experiencing the love of God in his own life. The rest of chapter 20 actually captures this painfully honest prayer that Jeremiah cried out after he was tortured for being God's prophet. And in verse 7 to 10, this is what it says. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Denounce him, let us denounce him, says all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. Here's the crazy thing. Jeremiah's harsh words against Pasher were understandable. But what's so shocking about Jeremiah chapter 20 is the passion with which he directs his complaint against God himself. And he basically says, God, I feel tricked by you. I feel swindled by you. I feel deceived. You lied to me. I said everything that you told me to say. I obeyed you to a T. And look what happened to me. They tortured me. And he's basically saying to God, I feel bullied by you. I feel forced to play this role of a fool. Always crying wolf, always warning the people, always telling them destruction is coming. And yet there's no destruction. I feel like a false prophet. That's what they're calling me because I'm the only one saying this message and there's no judgment here. There's nothing happening. I feel like you left me high and dry, God, to become the fool of Jerusalem. And it's like he's saying to God, I know I'm your prophet, God, 
but why do you only give me harsh messages to give to the people? Like every single time, it's the same thing. Death and destruction. And he's like saying to God, these are my neighbors. These are my friends. I have to live with these people. And this is the calling you have placed on my life. And what's interesting is what Jeremiah is saying is, they've taken that nickname, terror on every side, that I gave to Pasher, and they actually started calling me it to attack me and say, Jeremiah, you are actually the guy that should be called terror on every side. Because all you ever do is give us messages of terror. Even his closest friends have turned on him. Jeremiah feels trapped in a no-win situation. And he says, every time I open my mouth, I suffer. But then he says, every time I refuse to speak and don't want to talk anymore because I'm sick of all these beatings I'm getting, he says, then your word becomes like a fire in my heart. And I can't keep silent because the burden of that message you have given me has to come out and I have to speak it. And so he says, if I speak, I suffer. If I don't speak, I suffer. I want to say this. There is this prosperity gospel that is taught not only in America but all over the world that basically says this. If you obey God and are faithful to him, he will reward you with health and wealth and success in your life. But if you disobey, if you're rebellious, what awaits you is sickness and poverty. And so if you do not find success in your life, the answer is it's because of your lack of faith. But Jeremiah's entire argument is the exact opposite. He is angry at God. But he's angry at God because he says, I've done everything that you've asked me to do. And it's precisely because of my obedience that I'm suffering so much. And Jeremiah's basically saying, I don't get it, God. I don't get this life. I don't get this calling. He says, I understand that these people have become my enemy, but basically what Jeremiah is saying in his moment of honesty is, I feel like, God, you are my enemy too. All I have is enemies on every side. And God, I feel like I could count you as one of those enemies. Because every time I do what you want me to do, I feel like I get punished for it. And he's saying, it doesn't make sense. You see, Jeremiah also was confronted by the love of God. And I think Jeremiah was thinking, how could this be love? How could this be love? You don't love somebody like this. You don't drag them through the mud like this. You don't do this to somebody you love. And so Jeremiah, in a private moment of vulnerability, basically shouts back at God and says, what is going on here? How could you possibly say that this is out of your love for me, that you're making me go through this? And what Jeremiah had to discover was that he was going on a journey through suffering in which God was inviting him to a much deeper places of understanding God's love for him. This was such an important journey for Jeremiah. It's interesting that in the middle of these complaints, Jeremiah breaks into worship. In verses 11 to 13, he says this, But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. 
They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart of the mi- and the mind, let me see your revenge upon them. For to you have I committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. What Jeremiah is saying this is, even in my confusion, even in my struggle to understand you, God, even in my sentiment that I feel like you have turned on me and you've become my enemy, even in that place will I worship, will I turn to you, the very one who is afflicting me, I will turn to in my days of desperation and seek hope in you. That's what is represented in this worship of Jeremiah. I feel like you're the one that's actually beating me down, and I don't understand it. I can't make sense of it. But I will still cling to you and hold to your word of truth. Now, here's the thing is, it would have been so great if Jeremiah kept his mouth shut after this prayer because we could tie a very neat bow on this chapter and move on and say, Jeremiah learned his lesson, and all praise to God. He wins the day. But he just had to open his mouth one more time after this prayer, and he closes with these lines. And we can't avoid them because they're there. Jeremiah says this in verses 14 to 18. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you. Make him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. (laughs) This is dark stuff. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? That's how he ends the prayer. You can see this schizophrenic jumping back and forth of Jeremiah between worship and confusion and between surrender and anger and sadness. And this is what I love so much about Scripture is the brutal honesty of it. It doesn't hide this stuff. It doesn't sugarcoat it with these religious mottos. It opens the wound raw and lets people speak with honesty. And this is the honesty of Jeremiah. Is The truth is, God, I am literally jumping back and forth between trusting in you and wanting to punch you, you know, of celebrating you with praise and wishing I never existed, God. This is how I feel right now in this moment of despair. And the truth is, in that honesty, we find the truth of the Christian life, don't we? Because I think a lot of us can identify with this. One moment of raptured worship and seeing God at the center of it all And in the next moment, wondering if life is worth living. Just when we think we have God figured out, something happens to us that forces us to renegotiate our understanding of him and his love for us. Jeremiah does feel trapped between two hostile forces, but he realizes that God is the one that he must trust. Jeremiah feels like God is part of the problem in his life. And yet he still turns to God in his moment of need. And this is how I want to close the message today is this. This is a heavy message, talking about 
totally opening your soul bare to the honest truth about yourself and about confronting sometimes the illogical and just incomprehensible love of God, if that is love, in fact, in our suffering. You may hear a message like this today and say, I don't have what it takes to live the life you're describing. I don't. And I think what God is saying is, that's okay. Because when you look at all of the great men and women of faith in the Bible, they didn't always have that strength either. But if there is one consistent testimony that they demonstrated is, even in my confusion, even in my anger, even in my absolute frustration, and even in my suicidal thoughts, I turn to you, God. I turn to you. Because at the end of the day, you're the only rock that I have in this uncertain world. And frankly, God, sometimes when I think about turning to you, I'm not sure that I want to because I'm not sure I like you all the time, God. Sometimes I hate you, God. I really struggle with my feelings about you, God. Sometimes I feel like you've deceived me. You sold me a bill of goods. That's not true, God. But at the end of the day, I turn to you and I look to you because you're the only thing that seems to make any sense if you make sense at all in this life. And I think that is the faith that God honors in our lives, is even when everything is confusing around me and even when I struggle with trying to understand your ways, God, and even when I feel like life doesn't go as I wanted to or expected to, yet I will turn to you and put my trust in you so that you can help me in this moment of need. Eugene Peterson says this, and we'll close. Jeremiah yelled at Pasher, and after he yelled at Pasher, he yelled at God, angry, hurt, and somewhat bewildered that all this was happening to him. He didn't like any of it, but he wasn't afraid of it because the most important thing in his life was God, not comfort, not applause, not security, but the living God. What he did fear was worship without astonishment, religion without commitment. He feared getting what he wanted and missing what God wanted. It is still the only thing worthy of our fear. Let's pray. As we close the worship service in a time of response, I want to invite you to reflect on your life as it stands this day and think about the journey that you've been on. And I'm suspecting that for many of you, you have had to be confronted by the severity of God's love in ways that confuse you, that don't always make sense. I also want to challenge you that if you compare yourself with your younger days, maybe in a real moment of honesty, you would have to say, yeah, truth is, I'm not very teachable. And I, I... I don't know. I don't really feel like I'm learning from anyone right now. I feel like I've pretty much come to all the conclusions that I am going to accept about the way life works. As a result of that, our hearts have grown harder. Um, A hardness has settled in that we need to acknowledge. And, you know, here's the thing is you, you can tell yourself whatever lies you need to make you get through a day and feel better about yourself, feel better about life, but 
The truth is that there are some very difficult moments of honesty that need to be faced if we're going to live this Christian life. That causes us to take a look in the mirror and say, um, this is who I am, Lord. This is where I lack. This is where I'm struggling. My prayer for you this day is that you would have the heart of Jeremiah, not the heart of these people who harden themselves toward God. I pray that even in your confusion, even in your wrestling to understand God's ways, even in your struggle to love God and accept Him as you see Him, there would still be some kernel of faith that would arise in you It says, even though you afflict me, even though I feel like much of my life is just characterized by suffering and difficulty, yet by faith I will trust that you love me, that there is a greater purpose to this all, that none of this is meaningless, but that there is a plan for my life and that you are pursuing me in your love for me. You don't have to have all of the answers. You don't even have to have all the strength to meet the challenges that you're faced with. But what you need is the faith to put your trust in God and cling to Him, who alone can give you the power to overcome everything you're going to face in this life. So would you just take a moment to come before God in prayer and worship like Jeremiah did? Let's just worship Him. Let's give Him our lives. Let's give Him our hearts. Just maybe a prayer that you could just pray right now is, God, soften my heart. As I've gotten deeper into my own adulthood, I see a hardness there. I see an unteachability there that worries me. And I want a soft heart. I want a teachable heart. And so would you melt my heart, God, and make it like a child's? Let's just pray that for a few minutes as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of response.